After the proclamation of God's word, let us sing to the Lord our God from hymn 53, stanzas 3 and 4. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon, a little later on in the worship service, as we do almost every Sunday, we will sing the Apostles' Creed. And as we do so, we will sing together, I believe, and then this article as well, that he, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, descended into hell. This is what we confess together. But we also have questions. Christ descended into hell. But when... Exactly. How did he do so? And why did he do so? These are some of the questions that we hope to explore the light of God's word this afternoon. As we do so, we should be aware that there is, here in North America, a small but nevertheless somewhat vocal and perhaps even growing group of church leaders who have suggested that we should simply delete this article from the Apostles' Creed. These are not church leaders in our own federation of churches, but they are on the larger scene here in North America. And it's good that we're also aware of some of these things. Now you may ask, if this article has been part of the Apostles' Creed for so many centuries now, why would people come to the fore and say, maybe it's time to just delete it? They have two reasons for making this proposal. The first reason is this. They say, there is simply a lot of confusion in and among God's people about what this exactly means. And maybe you've had your questions too. The second key reason that they have is that they do not find any solid support in Scripture for this article of the Apostles' Creed. So what do we say about these two reasons? In the first place, brothers and sisters, if there is confusion about Christ descended into hell, that's not a reason to delete. If there's confusion, there's a reason to teach, a reason to explain. There should be an effort to clear up the confusion, but it's not a reason to push the delete button. The second reason, though, is, of course, as you will have understood, a much more significant one. Confusion is one thing. Biblical support is in another category altogether. And if it's true, if it's true that there's not really solid scriptural support for this, well, then we do have to take a closer look at it. Because a creed, a confession, 
A catechism is only there because it stands as a summary of the word of God. If it doesn't have scriptural support, then we have to ask why we would be confessing it. And so we hope to see this afternoon that, yes, indeed, this does have clear biblical support, and therefore it should not be deleted from the Apostles' Creed. And one more thing, brothers and sisters, even though there may be some confusion about this article, which we will endeavor to clear up at least to some degree this afternoon, there is also tucked in this article a deep, deep comfort that you and I do not want to be without. The theme, Christ conquered hell. First point, how Christ gained this victory. Second, how this victory comforts us. Brothers and sisters, let's come straight to the heart of the issue. Is there or is there not scriptural support for this article of the Apostles' Creed? Now, as we answer this question, we need to be aware that when people may come and say, maybe this just needs to be deleted, taken out, because there's no scriptural support for it, the first thing, if anyone would ever suggest that or say that to you, the first thing that you have to do is ask them, what is your understanding of what it means that Christ descended into hell? Because there are various different understandings, and the one that they say has no scriptural support may be a very different understanding than what you confess here in the Apostles' Creed and Lord's Day 16. For instance, the Roman Catholic Church says that between Christ's burial and his resurrection, Christ went to a place called Olympus, a kind of a temporary waiting place, which is close to hell. And what did he do? He released the Old Testament believers, the souls of the Old Testament believers, who had been waiting there and waiting there and waiting there for the death of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's the understanding of Christ descended into hell, Christ descended into hell to release the souls of Old Testament believers, and then someone says, well, you can't find any support for that in Scripture, we would say that's correct. Scripture does not speak about the souls of Old Testament believers having to wait in a place called Olympus and then at one point being released. But the question is not, is there scriptural support for that, but is there scriptural support for what we confess here in Article 44? And then we have to go in, of course, to Scripture and start to build things up. So in the first place, where... Did the soul of Jesus Christ go after he died, after he breathed his last? Let's begin there. Turning to Luke 23, and if you will, you can take your Bible and we will look at it together. Beginning in Luke chapter 23, about the death of Jesus, the Holy Spirit reveals the following. In the verses 39... And following, there were, of course, two criminals also crucified. 
beside our Lord. Beginning, they were mocking and rebuking him. But then one changed. And he said at a certain point, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what's going to happen today. You, the criminal, will be with me, Jesus Christ, in paradise. Now, obviously, paradise is not hell. It's the exact opposite. We go a little bit further. Verse 46. Then Jesus, a little later, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, my soul. And having said that, he breathed his last. So, Final words coming from the mouth of our Savior before he died were these. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The hands of the Father are clearly not the agony of hell. Far from it. They are the complete opposite. So, if we simply take the words of Jesus Christ himself from the cross, then we know that when he breathed his last, his soul, his spirit, went to paradise, went to heaven, went to the Father, not to hell. And the body of our Lord and Savior, verse 50 and following, was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So if his soul went to heaven and his body went to Joseph's tomb, then Jesus himself did not go to hell after he died. And so you can imagine that some of these church leaders say, well, there precisely, look, you have it. You've said it yourself. If he didn't go to hell after he died, but rather his soul went to heaven and his body went to the grave, why are we standing and singing Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that he was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. Maybe a long tradition, but if it's not scriptural, it's not scriptural, they say. Before we do anything rash and push a delete button, let's look at it a little bit more closely. Because you will notice, and significantly so, that in the footnotes of answer, question and answer 44, there are references not only to the New Testament, but also to the Old. In particular, the psalm we sang at the beginning of this worship service, Psalm 18 and also Psalm 116. And these psalms, well known to us, are psalms in which the one singing comes very near to the point of death. Think again of the stanza that we sang together from Psalm 18, the second stanza. The cords of death were tightly coiled around me. The torrents of destruction nearly, nearly drowned me. I lay in death's entangling cords ensnared. The grave confronted me, and I despaired. And then he called upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord delivered him. 
He felt, brothers and sisters, as if death had its grip on him and death was pulling him down, down, down towards the grave until the Lord miraculously saved him. Psalm 16 speaks in very similar language. In fact, taking it one step farther, there is often in the Old Testament language of descending toward, descending into the grave, also sometimes called Sheol. One very well-known example, the children will know it as well as they hear it in their story Bibles, is from Genesis 42, verse 38, towards the very end of the chapter. There, Father Jacob is in deep distress. He has already so he thinks, lost his son Joseph. Simeon has been held back in Egypt, and now the other brothers come and they say, Father, we need to take Benjamin back to Egypt in order to receive more grain and to have Simeon because the man thinks that we're lying. Well, completely in despair and in utter sorrow, Jacob says, verse 38, My son, that's Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for his brother Joseph is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are about to make, you, here it comes, would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And if you look through the Old Testament, you will find roughly 25 times in one way or the other where someone speaks about being brought down toward the grave, death, Sheol. They speak about descending towards death. It's a very common, very biblical phrase. And in fact, we still use this type of language today, don't we? If someone is becoming increasingly frail, sickness, old age, and you even ask, how is your father, how is your elderly mother doing? We may respond and say, yeah, they're, they're going down, becoming weaker and weaker every day. So we have that same type of language of going down towards the grave death, Sheol. And that's the scriptural language that is picked up in the Apostles' Creed. It's not something that was taken from somewhere out there, but right from especially the Old Testament. But now you have a question, and understandably so. If that's the case, if the Apostles' Creed is picking up this common phrase in the Old Testament, he descended to the grave, to Sheol, Why doesn't the Apostles' Creed just say that? And then it would be so much clearer for all of us why he descended into hell. Not the grave, not Sheol, but hell. Well, brothers and sisters, there is a reason. And that is because the he who descended was not merely a man but he was 
most certainly the mediator. If the he, the Jesus, were simply a man, a human being, just like you and I, and he was no more than that, then, with all of his sufferings and everything, he would have descended into the grave, just like we all, in one way or the other, descend into the grave. But he wasn't just a man. He was true man. He was a righteous man. But he was also true God. And that, Lord's Day 5 and 6, made him the one and only mediator who went down every step of the way to his death as the one bearing upon his shoulders and his soul the wrath of God for all of our sins, even Lord's Day 15, the weight of God's wrath against the sins of the whole world. And when that weight of God's holy, righteous wrath pressed down upon him throughout all of his life, Lord's Day 16, but especially at the end, heavier and heavier, more intense and more intense, the righteous wrath of God against upon the one mediator to the point where he finally cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brothers and sisters, to be utterly, totally forsaken by God is such a painful thing, such a terrifying thing, such an agonizing thing that there's one word that captures the intensity of it. And that word is hell. Jesus Christ did not simply go down through all the steps of his suffering to die. That he did. That's true. But he went down those steps as one who increasingly bore all of the horrors, agony, and pain of being forsaken by his very own Father all for you and for me. And that's why we confess not just he descended into the grave, but he descended into hell. But if that's the case, you may have another question, and understandably so. If that's the case, your question may well be, then why that particular order in the Apostles' Creed? Why do we sing, he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, he descended into hell. If it's so that the intensity of that suffering, that hellish agony and pain, was especially there 
on the cross? Why not say, suffered under the Pontius Pilate, was crucified, descended into hell, died, and was buried? Wouldn't that make it more clear? One way to answer that question, brothers and sisters, is to compare the Apostles' Creed with the Nicene Creed. If you're in the back of the book of page, the back of the book of praise, it's simply the next page over. For when it comes to the Nicene Creed and our confession of what Jesus Christ did for us, we read the following. Who, for us men in our salvation, came down from heaven, became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And then, praise the Lord, on the third day he arose. You notice that the Nicene Creed puts his suffering between his crucifixion and his burial. Which is, if you look at it strictly from a chronological point of view, quite a short span of time. Between his crucifixion, his burial, you could measure it in hours. Are we then saying in the Nicene Creed that it was only in those hours that he suffered for our salvation? Of course not. We understand that. We understand that intuitively. The suffering was very intense at that time. But he was suffering throughout all his life. He was suffering in the praetorium. He was suffering when the religious leaders came and accused him of this and that, or when the devil confronted him in the desert. You see, the point is simply this, brothers and sisters. In the Nicene Creed, in the Apostles' Creed as well, it's true. There is a general chronological progression. We start with his birth and we end with his return on the clouds of heaven. But let us not lock it down too rigidly. Just as when we in the Nicene Creed say he suffered between crucifixion and burial, but we understand that his suffering is for a lot longer period of time than that, let us not lock down he descended into hell too rigidly, chronologically, and say that it could only have happened after he died. That's not the point. The point was that the Lord Jesus Christ went through these things. He was crucified. He did die. He was buried. But now the catechism asks, why now is there added this other phrase? He descended into hell. Well, it is to look back and say, yes, he was crucified. But there were other people who were crucified, such as the criminals. Yes, he died. But a lot of people have died. Yes, he was buried, but a lot of people have been buried. But the crucifixion, death, and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ is completely unique because though thousands, yes, millions, have descended into the grave, but one went down that path suffering the full wrath of God for all of our sins. One went down that path, suffering the full agony of hell. And he did it for us. And this, brothers and sisters, is the gospel 
This is the good news packed into that little phrase. He descended into hell. If you bring the two creeds together, you could say, Who for us and our salvation from the Nicene Creed also descended into hell, the Apostles' Creed. And it's that truth that was revealed to us in such a powerful fashion in Colossians chapter 2 that we read together. Colossians chapter 2 speaks about the benefit for us from the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the one part of it, the first part of it, is of course very familiar to us. There we read verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, we're all sinful through and through, but the good news God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all of those trespasses. And how did that happen? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Through the cross of Christ, you are forgiven for all your sins. You know that. You've heard that many times over. That's part one. Now, look at part two. Because verse 15 is there as well. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What else happened when it was nailed to the cross? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God triumphed over the rulers and authorities in Christ on the cross. Who are these rulers? Who are these authorities? These are the fallen angels. Ephesians chapter 6. These are the powers and authorities that we are warned about. We're not fighting flesh and blood, brothers and sisters. We are fighting the spiritual forces of evil. The rulers, the authorities, the powers of the realm that we cannot see, but which is most certainly attacking us each and every day. And when Jesus Christ was going through his suffering on the cross, yes, especially the three hours of darkness, there was full-out war going on against those powers and authorities. And it was through his death that Christ conquered the one who holds so many people in the power of the fear of death, that is, Satan himself. Satan and all of his fallen angels with him, all of the demons, they didn't die when Jesus died on the cross. They're still alive. Satan is still around like a prowling lion, seeking what destruction he can do. He was in one very, very significant sense disarmed. Disarmed by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because through the death, we have been liberated from sin. And through the death of Jesus Christ, we have been made God's very own. Satan 
doesn't own us. By his precious blood, Christ owns us. He's paid the full price. And that is an immense, deep comfort. Particularly when you or someone you may know is going through the greatest sorrows and or perhaps or temptations in their lives. There are many sorrows in life. Some sorrows are there for a day or two or three, but then things brighten up again. That sorrow still has to be dealt with, but here we confess, brothers and sisters, that there's another category too. This is not what you would call, if we may say it, an average sorrow. This is greatest sorrow. Perhaps, brothers and sisters, it's a sorrow that is just so, so deep. You are plunged into the depth of that sorrow and you don't see a ray of light. It's just not bright for you. When people come and they try to encourage you and they try to point you to the bright side of things, they try to encourage you with verses from the Bible, but for you, going through it, it just seems all black, all sorrow. Perhaps it's greatest because how deep it is. Or perhaps it's greatest because how long it lasts. Some sorrows, a few days, and you see the brightness again. But some sorrows are not like that. Day after day, month after month, year after year, perhaps to your own grave, you take and you carry this sorrow. And it's in those deep, deep, long, long sorrows that sometimes inside the mind, the heart starts racing. And sometimes you cannot help but wonder if it feels so black for me here What about there, on the other side of death? Because one day we all have to die. If you don't think that God's people sometimes struggle with thoughts like that, it's true. They do. Will I be in heaven? Or will I be in hell? If you or someone you know goes through that type of a valley, brothers, sisters, you take the Apostles' Creed. You read it, you sing it, you say it, doesn't matter. Your voice may be shaking, maybe you can hardly get the words, it doesn't matter. You say, I believe. I may be here in the deep valley of the greatest sorrow, but I 
believe that Jesus descended into hell. He, so that I would not have to go through that eternal agony. Here in this life, I may have pain, I may have terror, I may have agony, the likes of which words cannot describe it. But this I believe. Jesus went through the agony of hell so that I would never have to go through that. So Satan, go away with your temptations. And sometimes those temptations too can be great, even greatest. There are many temptations. Some of them very quick, very fleeting. The temptation is there. You know it's wrong. You may, you may stumble. You may fall. You may pray. And by the grace of God, you may resist the temptation. But then it's past. Some temptations are like that. But not all temptations. Some are so strong. And the lure, the pull of sin... And the power of Satan working through that lure is so strong that you feel, brothers and sisters, if you're hanging on by your fingernails or perhaps not even that. It feels that this temptation has such a control over you. Greatest temptations. And what do you do? Because sometimes... In those deep, great, intense temptations, the mind starts going. The heart starts spinning. At a certain point, you cannot help but ask, if Satan seems to have such a grip on me here in this life, what will it be there on the other side of death? But if you or someone you know and you love goes through temptations like that, then you reach over for the creed. The creed which begins, I. I. I, the one who am in the depths of this temptation, I may be tugged, I may be lured, I may feel as if that sin has me all wrapped up. But by the grace of God, I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior, He descended into hell so that me, I may be comforted. I may be assured that though it may be a battle to my dying day. In Jesus Christ. I may say. I believe. That he will take me. Unto himself. No it's not going to be easy. Please. Do not misunderstand this. Satan is powerful. He prowls around. Like a roaring lion. He seeks what destruction he can do. And his sights are set on the church. That's you. That's me. 
But brothers and sisters, we're not going to tremble for him. Because we confess the truth of the Apostles' Creed, including this article. And we know that there's one word which is going to make even Satan shrink back in fear. And that one word is this. Christ. Amen.